gracious God, bless your holy word, the message of the Christ to our hearts this day and every day we pray in his name. Amen. Like most of us, I love sandwiches, and, and you know how sandwiches are constructed. You usually have bread on the bottom. You have the meat on top of the bread, or kind of the main course there in the middle. And then you have another piece of bread on top of that. And our gospel reading this morning is a little bit like a sandwich, and we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago as well. In the gospel of Mark, he often constructs these, quote, sandwiches. By that we mean he begins one story and then he interrupts it with another story and then he concludes the first story. And we see that in our gospel reading for today. We have the story of Jairus. His daughter is deathly ill. Jesus agrees to come and to heal her. That's interrupted by the woman with the flow of blood. That story then is brought to a conclusion. Then we pick up the first story and bring that to a conclusion. And the point we made two weeks ago was this. It's that middle section that really informs the other story. If you want to understand what the other story, the first story is really about, pay attention to the middle section. Now, be aware also, notice in the first paragraph of your gospel reading, this is in verse 22, notice the little asterisks. Okay, this is a New American Standard uh, translation, very um, literal translation. And the asterisk is there to tell you that what you read is really not what's written in the Greek. All right? For example, Verse 22, and one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came. Well, that's past tense. In the Greek, it's present tense. And wherever you see the asterisk, you switch the verb from the past to the present if you want to take it literally. This is a device that Mark uses a lot in his gospel. He writes in the present tense as if the action's occurring right before your eyes. It's taking place right now. It, it's, it's a way of, I think, dramatizing the story. And so you would read this. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus comes and upon seeing him falls at his feet and pleads with him earnestly saying, you see, it's present tense. That's the way Mark wrote it. So the asterisk is there to point that out. I point it out just because it's interesting to me. I hope I'm not boring you with that, but that explains the asterisk. It's interesting as well that both of these stories really have a lot in common. Both women are healed by the touch of Jesus. Both are referred to by him as daughter. Both the length of the woman's illness and the age of the young girl is listed as 12 years. And in both stories, Jesus suffers a rebuke. In verse 31, his disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? Like, it's ridiculous. You, you, you don't know who touched you. And then verse 40, and they began laughing at him. 
when he said the little girl is not dead but asleep. So Jesus, in both stories, is rebuked. And finally, in both stories, Jesus comes into contact with uncleanness, with uncleanness. And the Bible has a lot to say, especially in the Old Testament, about uncleanness. And so uncleanness is a spiritual condition. It's a spiritual condition that is contagious, all right? So to come into contact with a dead body, you become unclean until evening, and you must bathe and then wait until evening. Then you can come back to the temple or back to the synagogue or back to the um, you know, religious assembly, whatever it is. You're, you're prohibited from attending that until the uncleanness period is over. Uh, to come into contact with a hemorrhaging individual, a person with a bodily discharge, to come into contact with that renders you unclean or ritually, spiritually impure until evening, and then you must bathe. Then you can rejoin the assembly again. This has to do with the holiness of God. We don't have time to get into it. but And it's not a main emphasis in the story, but I bring it to your attention because I think it's symbolic of something greater. Jesus takes our uncleanness upon himself. By coming into contact with these individuals, he becomes unclean. And it's really symbolic of what St. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's this exchange, you see. Our uncleanness goes to Jesus. His righteousness, his purity, his holiness comes to us. And finally, uh, one more preliminary comment. <laughs> and that has to do with the subject of secrecy. And notice in verse 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. Okay, and so he says, the little girl's not dead but sleeping. Why are you making all this commotion? And they laugh at him, right? But look at verse 40. But putting them all outside, see, he takes along the child's father and mother and his own companions. Those are Peter, James, and John. So this is a private thing. And you see this throughout the Gospels. The miracles of Jesus are done in private. They're not public displays. You see, the temptation in Matthew 4 was, hey, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. People will see you and believe. Don't you get it? If you want a big following, this is how it's done. No, that is not how Jesus wants to be known. He's not the miracle worker, though he does miracles. He will reveal himself publicly as the Messiah only at the cross. He will confess that he is the Messiah before the Sanhedrin, that will get him condemned, and he will, be, he will do his public work there at Calvary. That's how he wants to be known, in other words. That's why there's so much secrecy about the miracles. You wouldn't even know. When he, when he turns water into wine, you wouldn't even know that there's a miracle, except you taste something. This is different. But aside from that, you wouldn't know. That's not how he wants to be recognized and remembered. It's as the crucified one that he must be believed upon and remembered. Okay, so Roman numeral one 
on page 9. Our needs draw us to Jesus. Our needs draw us to Jesus. Jairus is drawn to Jesus because of a need. His daughter's dying. The woman's drawn to Jesus because she, she hasn't experienced any cure anywhere else. She comes to Christ, you see. And it's important to recognize that our needs are not a sign of weakness. God created us with needs. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We're created needing the fellowship of other people. That's how we're designed. So our needs draw us to Jesus. And letter A, we seek to have our needs met. We seek to have our needs met. The woman seeks something from Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, seeks her. Jesus is not content to simply cure her. Jesus seeks a meeting with her. He seeks the meeting. Notice, he says, who touched my garments? See, all these people are pressing in on him. They're all touching him. But the power leaves him, the power to heal leaves him when a woman with faith comes into contact with him. And he wants to know who it is. And it reminds me a lot of uh, John chapter 9. <clears throat> After uh, Jesus heals this man born blind, then later he comes back and he seeks him out. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? He is the one talking to you. And the man believes. You see, Jesus seeks a relationship. Letter B, Jesus seeks us. He seeks us. We seek to have our needs met, and he seeks us. Now, it's not a put-down to us. We have needs. We need to have them met. We go to the source. Jesus seeks us. Number one, Jesus seeks a relationship with us. He seeks a relationship with us. In baptism, Jesus creates a relationship with you. God's name is put on you. You bear his name. You belong to God. And in the Lord's Supper, Jesus continues that relationship with you. In the divine service, when we gather in his name, he's present in a special, unique way for us to meet us, to serve us with his gifts. And number two, all relationships are an expression of trust. They are expressions of trust. They all are. Trust is central to a relationship. Without trust, there is no relationship. There's none. And so Roman numeral two, and this is the theme of the entire lesson, the entire gospel reading, Trust Jesus despite everything to the contrary. Believe in Christ, even when the cause seems lost. Hold on to him, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And letter A, this is a lesson for Jairus. He heals the woman with the flow of blood, and by that time, a messenger comes from his house, Jabris' house, 
says, your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any further? In other words, it's a lost cause. He can't help you now. Okay? He can't help you now. It's a lost cause. But the lesson is, trust Jesus despite everything to the contrary. Let me ask you this. If Jairus had taken the advice to not bother the teacher any further, would his daughter have been raised? I don't think so. If, if the woman with the flow of blood had not believed, would she have been healed? I don't think so. What did Jesus say? Daughter, your faith has made you well. The woman becomes an object lesson for Jairus. Now, I think that's the point. Your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any further? But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, says, present tense, says to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, only believe. Trust even when it doesn't make sense to do so. There's all kinds of examples of this today. Now, the catechism and, and scripture teach that marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. But many don't believe that today. They would say, no, it's a lost cause. That ship has sailed. We're way past that. Why believe in biblical morality? It's a lost cause. The Catechism and, and Scripture teach that sex outside the marriage bond is harmful to people. It causes harm. <laughs> Spiritual harm, emotional harm, even economic harm. And yet many people act otherwise. Many people refuse to believe that. They say it's a lost cause. The scripture teaches that the father, the husband, is the spiritual head of the home. But many people ignore that. They would say, to say those kinds of things, or, or to say that parents should exercise authority over their minor children. Don't leave the decisions up to them. You make the decision for them. You're the parent. That's why God put you there. We would say, no, that's a lost cause. Let the child decide. Child's smarter. The problem, my friends, is not with lost causes. The problem is a lack of faith in the Lord of lost causes. The problem is a lack of faith in the Lord himself. My friends, truth is still the truth, even if no one believes it. And a lie is still a lie, even if everyone's living it. Public opinion is constantly changing. Do you want to base your life on that? The word of the Lord remains forever. Enough said. Where do you stand? Roman numeral 2, letter B, point 1. 
The crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest lost cause of all. The greatest lost cause of all. That was the ancient version of cancel culture. When you put someone up on the cross, you were canceled. You were so shamed and humiliated in the eyes of all that no one would follow you anymore. No one would believe in you. No one would trust you. You're rejected. You are a reject. Anyone put up on a cross, whatever followers they had, left and would claim their leader no longer, except Jesus, <laughs> because he was raised from the dead. The movement lives on. The movement grows. I cannot think of a major historical figure at any time, any place, any continent, any period of history who suffered greater shame than Jesus. And yet, he is the most successful man who has ever lived, creating the largest movement in history. Why? Because God is the God of lost causes. With God, all things are possible. And number two, faith in Jesus defies defeat. It defies defeat. Faith in Jesus will not accept defeat because the battle is the Lord's. The Lord manifests his strength out of our weakness. The Lord brings victory out of our failures. Don't be discouraged by failure or by defeat. The battle is the Lord's. In Scripture, throughout Scripture, God does the impossible. With God, barren women give birth. Waters part. And people walk through the sea on dry ground. With God, mighty walls fall flat before the sounds of trumpets. Iron axe heads float in the water. With God, the valley of dry bones comes to life. The virgin conceives and bears a son. The incurable are healed. The dead are raised. The humble are exalted. The proud are abased. With God, all of these things happen. With God, the poor are blessed. The mourn, those who mourn are comforted. And the chief of sinners is saved and proclaims the very faith he once tried to destroy. My friends, all of us were a lost cause until Jesus. And now, because of his substitutionary death and because of his resurrection, the guilty are declared righteous by grace alone, and sinners become holy through faith in him. My friends, with Jesus, no one is a lost cause. No marriage is a lost cause when Christ is present. No one is beyond the reach of our Lord. Faith understands that life's setbacks are God's opportunities to display his saving power. And so I remind you, cling to the Lord despite everything to the contrary. Trust in Jesus, especially when all seems lost, because that is when you will find the Lord at work doing amazing things. In Jesus' name, amen.
The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.